0: I think you would probably all agree with me that America's defense program is the greatest one in the world. When you think of the men and women who are our fighting forces in the Marines, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, and supported by the Coast Guard and all sorts of reserve and the National Guard and the Border Patrol, we have a strong defense in our manpower, We know behind that manpower there are even more people, people who make the plans and the strategies, people who do all the intelligence searching and use that for our benefit. And then there's that mighty power of all the weapons that we have, just from guns, from the artillery, planes and ships, missiles, satellites. Without a doubt, we can say, We've got the strongest defense program in this world. Yet, we know we're still vulnerable. This week we saw evidence of that. And one of our embassies overseas is bombed. We know that even within our own borders, we are still vulnerable. As we are reminded again of another bomb attack. And we know that sometimes people get through those airport security lines and have broke the defense system that was there. Over the next few weeks, as our presidential candidates lay out their plans for our country, to be sure we're going to hear more about what they plan to do to defend us from harm. And we'll be called upon to trust their plans. But I have a question. What about us spiritually? What about the attacks and the wounds that we occur spiritually? Where's the plan for that? As we have been emphasizing this month in our messages, we want to trust the Lord's plans. We looked at his labor plans. We've looked at his education plans. Today, let's take a look at God's defense Plans. and as he lays them out for us we'll be called upon to trust them but maybe we need to take a step back first of all and ask who's our enemy or who's our friend that seems to be the question today for our country who's our enemy do we know well we can put labels to them right we can say well it's the terrorists it's al-qaeda Maybe we'll say it's the Taliban or Iran. We might go farther. Maybe it's North Korea. Maybe it's Russia. It might be easy, in some sense, to identify who our enemies are. But there are more enemies than just those that I listed. There are enemies who are within our own borders. There are enemies who are in our homes. There are enemies... Who are in our hearts and in our minds. We need to know who they are and how to defend against them. And so that really is the first part of the Lord's defense plans: is that we recognize who the enemies are. We're going to take a look at just one small section of the Lord's defense plan for us as it's laid out in James chapter 4, and this is what his point is when he starts. No. The enemy. He writes, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's telling us the first enemy to know is the world. Now, by that I mean human society that is without God and opposed to God. Human society that stands up and says they want nothing to do with God and in fact do just the opposite of what God tells us he wants us to do. Now it's probably pretty easy for us to identify that part of the world. But there's more to the world that we have to be alert to as well. Now, God has put us in this world. He has given us the things of this world to be blessings for us, for us to enjoy and to use for our benefit. But those things can also become an enemy when they let us influence us to take us away from God. That is, when we start to follow them, when we start to put more love or trust in them than we do God, then it has become an enemy. Let's just think of how a friendship develops and what it does, right? You first meet the person. You have an acquaintance with them. You find out a little bit about them. Then you discover there are some things you maybe have in common, some things you like to do. And then all of a sudden you create a bond with that person and you start doing things with them. And pretty soon you might even find that you begin to be influenced by them. You begin to be conformed by who they are and what what they like to do. And pretty soon you find that you're maybe even kind of controlled or directed by that friendship. Now that's the same thing that can happen to us spiritually in this world. Take, for example, something as simple as the words we speak. We become accustomed to hearing language that we probably don't approve of and wouldn't use, and no, God doesn't use or, or approve of. But as we become more and more acquainted with it, pretty soon maybe we become okay with it, maybe even start using it ourselves. Or think of the use of substances, how people try it. And they like it, it helps a little bit, and, and they use it a little more and a little more, and pretty soon that, that substance controls them. And the same is true with sexual activity outside of marriage. All of a sudden we begin to adopt the thinking and the, and the behaviors of the world around us. And that's true even for just things, things that... We like to enjoy, and and we want more of and more of and want to give more attention to it. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves now friends with the world, but enemies with God. James says, you adulterous people. (laughs) You've broken your covenant. You've broken your love with God. And God tells us that friendship with the world will only lead to condemnation with the world. Know the enemy. Now James goes on and and, and points out to us another enemy when he says, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The devil. Yeah, that old evil foe. That ancient serpent. The one who has been working on mankind since the beginning of time is still at it today. In fact, we've been in battle with him from the very moment of our existence. And every day of our life, he is working on us. The Bible describes him as a very terrible enemy. He's tricky, he's cunning, he's deceitful, and he's deadly. Don't think of him as some in the world think of him as just some mythological figure. He's a real spiritual being. You've felt him working on your heart, speaking to your mind. You've seen what he can do to you, how he changes your words and your attitudes and your actions. Scripture tells us we need to be on guard against him. In our first scripture reading this morning, Paul said, look at people. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, our battle is not against other people, but it's against the ruler, against the power and authorities of this dark world, i.e., the devil. Don't be mistaken. God tells us that there's a burning lake of fire in store for him and his followers. Know the enemy. And there's one more. There was an old comic strip years ago, Pogo. (laughs) And the well-known line that came out of that comic strip, we have met the enemy, and he is us. (laughs) The devil is so successful, and the world is so influential because of us. And that's the third enemy we have to look at. As James points out for us when he says, the scripture says, God opposes the proud. Those people who don't want anything to do with God, those people who say there is no God, those people who think they've got it all together and they can get to eternity all by themselves. In fact, verses just before our text, James highlighted that sin nature when he said, what's the source of the wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are all at war within you? That third enemy is that sin nature that pushes and pulls inside of us. Sometimes we might call it just a weakness that we have. Sometimes, though, we can feel its strong influence as it really pulls us to do things that we know are wrong, but we sure want to do them, and we go ahead and do them. That sin nature is the carnal mind that Paul talks about and says it's enmity against God and that the carnal mind will only lead to death. Know the enemy. Now, maybe we don't take this war very seriously. And maybe because... (laughs) We're in it day after day after day, and we've just become used to it. Maybe we see things as just, you know, all weaknesses, or, or this is normal, or everybody does it. We might even find ourselves actually leading people into the war to do the things that are wrong. And we think nothing of it, maybe because we don't experience any kind of punishment or hardship from it right now. So we kind of put it off. We need to take this battle seriously because the devil and the world won't stop. And our sin nature will keep giving in until the time we die. It is a battle unto death. If you just look around, you see that we experience the consequences every day. The fears that we feel, the problems we experience, the personal conflicts that we go through, as well as the national conflicts we're involved in. Even as something as simple as a sniffle, or something as serious as death, and all the stuff in between, are all reminders that we're in a war. Sin has ruined this world. But we don't have to experience this eternally. There is a way out. There is a way that we win. And that's the second part of God's defense plan. To provide us with a victory and to have us know what that victory is. Listen, please, as James goes on now to tell us about this victory and how God makes it ours. He says, do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Or you could translate that from the Greek, he longs jealously. This is one of my favorite Bible passages, and it's really very interesting. Simply put, it's telling us God gives us his spirit. But I like what James says about that. Don't you know that his spirit longs jealously for you? Now, be careful and listen to what I said. I said for you. I didn't say God is jealous of you. So any of you who are saying, see, I told you I look pretty good today. Or, you know, I know I'm that smart and God wants to be like me. No, no, no. God isn't jealous of us. He's jealous for us like a husband and a wife that are jealous for each other and want to keep each other and love and protect each other? That's the kind of jealousy God has for us. Simply put, he doesn't want to lose us. And so he's given us his spirit. That spirit, we are told, acts like a protective seal to make us secure in our faith, He acts as a guarantee and a deposit, assuring us of God's love and the assurance of that promise of eternal life in heaven. That's where God's victory starts for us, right there, in that he has given his spirit inside of us to tell us he longs for us, jealously, not wanting to lose us. Now here's more that he does. James says, but he that is God gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now I'm going to phrase it this way. God gives us great grace. I know our translation said God gives us more grace. But the Greek word actually means great or greater grace. Despite how much I sin, despite how weak I am, despite how often I am unfaithful to God, I can't undo his grace. His grace is always greater than my sin. As the scripture puts it, where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. And it has to be that way, because I can't do anything about my sin. I can't erase it. I can't pay it off. I can't undo it and, and balance it out with a lot of good. Somebody once said, you know, God does not grade us on a curve. And that's true. You know, God doesn't look at us and say, well, you know, these guys, they're always going to church, so I'll, I'll give them a, an A because, you know, the other people, they don't go to church. He doesn't say that we do better than others and therefore grade us on a curve. Nor does God look at us and say, well, these poor people, they're really pretty pathetic, but I know they're trying as best they can, so I'll let them into heaven because they're trying. No, God does not grade on a curve. God grades us only by one standard, his standard of holiness. He said, be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, how can we do that? We can't. But God, in His jealous love for us, took care of that. He Himself comes into this world to take our place. Jesus, God's Son, comes to live under all of the laws of God, perfectly perfectly. And God takes his perfection and through faith in him, gives it to us. And the penalty, the punishment that was due for our sin, for our disobedience, it's gone because God took his wrath and he put it on Jesus instead. We'll never experience it. The resurrection is proof of that. With his resurrection, Jesus is telling us your sins are paid for. Death is defeated. You will live forever. That's the grace that God gives to the humble, to those who know we have no righteousness of our own to get to heaven, who admit, I cannot fight and win the devil and, my, and the world and my sin nature. I need help against them all. God is there with his grace and simply gives us the victory through faith. Now, I tell you, my friends, isn't that an awesome thing to think about? Start with God's jealous love for you. You you have a bad day, and maybe you recognize that you have a bad day because some of that is your fault. And you recognize you live in a bad world and that that bad world is part of your doing. But God has a jealous love for you that no matter how bad your day is, nothing will take you from his love and his promise. So don't reject the spirit that jealously longs for you. Don't grieve that spirit with your intentional sins, but seek to get that spirit to make you strong, to stand firm in faith and with faithfulness to God. And to get that spirit, you have to go where God gives the spirit, which is in the word and in the sacraments. And God pours out that spirit to you. He gives the grace to his humble, that grace that keeps on giving, that no matter how much I sinned yesterday or today or will do in the future, All those sins are gone. No matter how much I'm undeserving, God's jealous love keeps blessing me every day all the way through eternity in heaven. My friends, that's our victory. It's won by Jesus and simply given to us by grace through faith. Now, in order to enjoy that victory and in order to live in that victory, we need to follow this strategy that God gives us for fighting against those enemies. Three simple points. James tells us this. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail, Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He's simply telling us, repent. Admit to God your sinfulness. He knows it. Confess to him your weaknesses. He wants to help. When he's giving this encouragement, He's telling us to take sin seriously. Stop laughing about it. Stop considering it to be, oh, well, you know, that's the way it is. God takes it seriously. Seriously enough to kill his own son for what you've done. But he also takes forgiveness seriously. And so when you come to him, he'll wash you. He'll cover you with that blood of Jesus that takes away all the sins of the world. He'll come and make you his friend again. With God, there is always forgiveness and restoration to that right standing. We simply need to trust him for it. second part of the strategy, James says, Submit yourselves then to God. In other words he's telling us return to god sin is sometimes defined as lawlessness in other words a rebellion a simple disregard for what the law says and i'm going to do it my way sin sometimes is categorized also as waywardness you know where we've kind of drifted where in weakness and in ignorance we've done things and don't realize till later that they're wrong James is calling us to submit to God. That was a military term, which simply meant, recognize your rank and do your duty. Recognize who you are. Redeemed people of God who have now been called to be his servants. That's our rank, and our duty is to obey him, to love him, to honor and respect him and to thank him with our lives. If you know that there are areas of your lives where you are not submitting to God, ask Him to help you. Get strength from His Spirit and use these weapons of armor that He gives you so that you can submit and show your obedience and love. We can't do that on our own. That's why we ask Him to give His Spirit to us to strengthen us. James' final point in this strategy, he says, resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Resist the devil. Know who your enemy is. Know what your weaknesses are. Know how he trips you up and avoid it. Be strong in the Lord. Use this armor of God and simply say to the devil, No. It's that simple. Martin Luther, in his great hymn, The Mighty Fortress, describes the fighting power of the devil, and at the end he simply says, but one little word can fell him. Let that word be Christ, because in Christ we have the victory and the strength to stand firm. That's the strategy. Now imagine a country that doesn't know its enemies, that doesn't know how to defend itself. (laughs) In this day and age, it wouldn't be around very long. But let me ask you, is that where you are spiritually? Are you ignoring your enemies and not paying attention to how God will defend you? Follow the strategy. Don't just know it, but follow it. Make an assessment of your life at the end of the day and more importantly after you recognize that you've been tripped up and go to God and seek his forgiveness. Ask him to make you strong to return to that way of righteousness and to make you strong to resist the devil and his attempts. And here's the good part. When we follow the strategy, we know we will win. Not because of us, but because of Christ. Christ. You see, the victory is already won. The victory has been given to us. Now we simply need to live in it. Amen.